This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we support design engineers and make lightning protection easy. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. All right, welcome back to the Struck Aerospace Engineering Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On tonight's show, we'll talk about FAA. They've uh, sent a complaint to Boeing saying that they're appointing uh, either inexperienced, incompetent, or, or both uh, folks to oversee their flight certification. So big topic for discussion here today. Uh, we'll also talk about SkyDrive. They have a flying car that's gotten a safe- safety certificate in Japan. Uh, really interesting looking craft. So We'll see what that certification actually means in, in real world uh, use. Uh, we'll talk about Kansas and their potential for being a big player in the EVTOL sector. Hyundai spinning off into Supernal, their EVTOL segment, and their big plans for the future, which might be a little too big. And lastly, we'll talk about Volocopter. Um, they've shown a first crewed test flight of their X2 vehicle, and they're looking uh, like they're continuing on, and they're a very linear, progressive, like marching along thing that Volocopter is doing. They've continued to make uh, good progress. So um, a lot today in our EVTOL segment. First, let's jump to Boeing. Um, Alan, I know this is a, a really deep article from uh, the Seattle Times. Um, Dominic Gates, their uh, aerospace reporter, does a great job. This is seems like a big a big story, but I, I mean, so the, so the FAA has sent a complaint um, to Boeing saying that, hey, like these safety appointees are just not measuring up. Um Alan, take me through a little bit of this process first before we dive into some of the the accusations in the in you know from FAA to Boeing. But like, what is this situation here? Where, why does Boeing appoint their own safety people? That seems almost like an internal uh, conflict. But then again, that's how it sort of has to happen. Can you explain this whole safety appointee thing first, and then we'll dive from there? There are two sort of parallel organizations that go on in terms of certification. One is the generic uh, FAA directly involved with with uh, engineering delegates like me uh, that are working on a particular aircraft project, and the FAA has direct oversight. The second is what is an organizational delegation, what they call an ODA. And in that, a company like Boeing uh, sets up an administration internal to Boeing to handle the certification aspects. So it has like a quasi-FAA situation inside of the company, and the FAA audits the organization, not the direct uh, members of the organization. So I, as a DER with the FAA, I interact with the FAA engineers all the time, and they have direct oversight over what I do. Uh, they question my, my abilities every six six months, make sure I'm still keeping up and I have to take mandatory training every year uh, to stay current with all the regulatory things that are changing. That same sort of setup is supposed to be happening inside organizations like Boeing. Right? So, so you have this sort of oversight, FAA oversight, direct oversight, then you have a delegated oversight. Think of it that way. So it's like one layer removed at Boeing from direct FAA interfaces. So if I had a question about a regulation or an approach, I could just pick up the phone and call my FAA advisor and say, hey, I need some help here. 
in an ODA situation, like at Boeing, engineers like me, which are called unit members typically, a unit member engineer working, trying to certify an airplane, uh, could only talk to somebody internal to Boeing about the issue, a certification issue. You, you couldn't reach out directly to the FAA. You're supposed to work internal first and then reach out to the FAA afterwards. So there's a little bit of separation. And the reason this was done originally was to take some burden off the FAA. As you can imagine, there are now there are hundreds of, of companies building airplane parts and trying to certify things. Uh, it just gets overwhelming for the FAA. The FAA would have to st staff up with a lot more engineers and a lot more sort of bureaucracy to manage all these companies that are building things uh, all at the same time. And so instead of the federal government sort of investing in the FAA, what they decided to do is to essentially limit the FAA and to hand off some of the certification aspects to the companies with oversight, with oversight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of moving pieces, obviously, and there's a lot of bureaucracy in both directions, and uh, that oversight is obviously necessary. So what it sounds like the FAA had been working with Congress and that there's a new uh, system here in place that uh, the FAA Reform Act was passed, and now there's going to need to be a, a more rigorous approval process that anyone at Boeing appoints going forward will have to be sent over to the FAA. They'll have to review it and approve them within 60 days. Um, how do you feel about that, that process, Alan? I, I think this whole thing started back in 2018. So I, I try to go back and look at Dominic Gates's article and try to figure out what information he had put together to create the piece. It looked like the legislation was from 2018, not, I thought it'd be in 2020, but I guess it was 2018, but they did have some, changes in the way the FAA is supposed to operate. And one of those was that the FAA itself has direct oversight about the sort of internal delegates, a unit member, uh, that they get to oversee that because they don't right now. They don't. Uh, whatever happens inside Boeing kind of happens inside Boeing and they're following their own procedures that the FAA approved. But in any organization, I think, it gets a little shaky because everybody knows one another. So you got this sort of social construct above the policy, right? I know that. I know Bob. You were like, no, give him a chance. He he could do. Yeah, he could do exactly that job. Mm -hmm. Even though he might not exactly have the qualifications. Yeah, that seems. You want someone to say no? They're either a hundred percent or they're not. Like they're all in or they're all out. Not like. Because then you, you just have that standard slip where it's, oh, he's like 95% of the way to the criteria. So that that's good enough. Plus, we trust him. He's been here a long time. But then that 95% becomes 90%, you know, a little lower, a little lower. So, yeah, it seems like it needs to be more of a, a, an objective pass-fail. But is is it, how is the criteria? Is it easy to be, obviously, I don't think anyone could meet like 95% of a, of a standard, right? That's probably a little bit too... Um, objectively calculated, but like how, how do they certify who's good and who's not, who can do the job and who can't? By first off years of experience on the job. And I, I forget what the different ODAs tend to have different requirements there, but typically it's somewhere between five and eight years of ex direct experience on, on what you're doing and knowing the regulations. And there used to be a system 
years ago of you were a candidate DER or be a candidate unit member, I suppose, where you were actually working in parallel with somebody who did that job every day. And so there was a there was a sort of an apprenticeship program, which has, has since gone away. But there was an apprenticeship program in which you got to see all those interactions and how that uh, DER or unit member did their job. And so the senior person would kind of train the junior person. So when the time came where the senior person would retire, moved on to another position, they would have somebody underneath them kind of ready to go. To fill in that slot, kind of like sports teams are set up. Actually, it's very similar to that sort of an apprenticeship program. Uh, and the the issue, as as you well described, Dan, is that you know the personal social interactions start to come into play here. Of uh, in, in the case of Boeing, it sounds like they've had a lot of unit members, experienced engineers, retire or quit, find another job. And when you have sort of that massive, if you have massive turnover, you may not have someone, an apprentice lined up to fill that slot. But you need to fill that slot because you can't certify a product, approve a product without having a person in that chair. And so then I think the tendency would then become human nature. Human nature would be to try to put somebody in that slot who is qualified, but probably just barely, maybe, or you feel like could learn on the job. This is probably what's going on is they feel like they could learn on the job. Hey, this, this engineer is a smart person. They can figure this out on the job. We'll, we'll support them through this, this process. We'll give them a little bit of help to get going, and then they'll pick up some steam and, and take it on their own. But that's not the way the system is really, truly supposed to be set up. And I think that's what the FAA is saying. It's like, as described in the article, uh, an FAA engineer walked into a room of Boeing unit members and didn't recognize anybody. <laughs> that's not a good comforting feeling. You got to have some continuity there uh, to, and because it's a it's a people business. I know it's we're all talking about engineering and designing things, but it's still a people business, and to have that. Uh, as we have talked about Boeing more recently, what is that uh, community like? What is the atmosphere? How do they interact with one another? Right? To get, get this, this sort of uh, familiar nature that goes on inside of a, a company and it becomes like a, this quasi business family relationship. That how those people react to one another and behave with one another is, is results in the quality of the product. It just does. Everybody's fighting and feuding, probably a bad product. Everybody's working together and gets along, probably a pretty good product's coming out the door. And I think the FAA is just sensing that there's not that comfort feeling they would like to have with Boeing. Or and, and the same thing would apply to any other aircraft company, I, I think. I think they chose Boeing because Boeing's been going, as we've described here on the on the podcast, multiple weeks now. There's been a number of really critical Boeing problems that I think the FAA is saying, you know, the, the, the experts in their field should be catching these things and, and, and they're not catching them at the rate with, that they should be catching them. Maybe they're not up to speed and we need to step in. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. Yeah. Well, and how do I mean, it seems like some of this, the issue is if there's a lot of vacancies all at once. I mean, we talked about how there's a lot of people retiring, right, hitting that retirement age, and they haven't been able to fill the, those spots with young people. And then the, obviously, the second difficulty is filling 
to the spots with qualified people who are young. So, I mean, is that is that just going to continue to be a problem with the pipeline of, of younger engineers? Yeah. So, so you've had sort of a, a double whammy here or a triple whammy. You had 737 MAX having problems, Boeing slowing down. Economy tanked with uh, COVID and particularly airlines. Boeing slows down. There's not as much work to do. Probably some of those engineers got golden parachutes to retire uh, or decided to retire because there's nothing happening. Uh, and and because of that cyclical nature, it's not just the, this COVID thing, but it, it's it's a, air, aircraft is very cyclical. Every seven, eight years is a huge downturn and they don't hire in that window. <laughs> they don't tend to hire. And so you have these bands of ages of engineers that come through the system. And if your downturn was longer, you're going to have this sort of wide gap between uh, the experienced person and the next generation behind them. That's a problem. That's a problem. And it's, 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 it's a problem in, in, in the aircraft industry in particular, because not only do you have to know what, how to design an airplane and what it should look like and how it should function and operate and perform, you have to know all the regulatory aspects and the FA aspects too. It's, it's like a, Two jobs. You know, it's really two separate jobs. There's not many people who can do that. I mean, it takes a lot of training and it takes a lot of on on the job training. So it's hard to fill those slots. And so I, I could see Boeing having trouble with that right now. But what if the FAA comes in, Dan, let me ask you this. If the FAA comes in right now and says, we want to audit everybody who is a unit member that you've got approved in your system. We're going to go take a second look at them and say they they, they, they say, hey, 10% of them are not acceptable. I mean, it's 20% of them are not acceptable. What is Boeing going to do? Like, where do you go? It, that, that becomes really difficult. Those people are just not walking on the street. Yeah, either you have people that have the experience or you don't. You can't just conjure them up and like you said you can't train them so if they don't objectively pass the standard they just don't pass yeah that seems like a difficult like a difficult road ahead and i think that's that's going to be the problem is you can't train somebody up in faa speak and knowledge and, and just the historical parts of it in a week you're talking about a solid year or two or three to really grasp all the aspects that are going on and you're just your one little small sliver of the certification world and that's going to be the trouble and I, I i think about it this way too if you want to quasi shake up the organizational delegation system and you're going to provide oversight to all these engineers you're going to start reviewing them if you want to really grab hold of the whole system fast what do you do if you're the faa you, you, you hit boeing and then all the smaller players all perk up and start paying attention. Like, well, if they did it to Boeing, they're gonna they could do it to me. So I need to go through my organization and make sure I don't have anybody in that same situation. So it's going to have this kind of self weeding out effect, I think, of of smaller airplane companies, smaller manufacturing aircraft part manufacturing companies that are designing things, certifying things, are going to be looking at their organization and saying, hey. If we went through an audit with the FAA, how would we fare? And if we have holes, we need to fill them. So if you're a DER right now, things are looking up because I think there's going to be a lot of positions that are going to be opening up in the next six months of we need to fill a slot. We need to fill it now. 
uh, and you probably bring some people out of retirement. Honestly, if the pay is high enough, I think that'll happen. So there's a really weird mix of, of engineering FAA going on right now. It's, it's, I think it's unusual. I haven't seen anything really like it before. All right, moving on. Um, Alan, you're going to have obviously a ton of expertise growing up from growing up in Kansas, but uh, there's been a bill passed through the U.S. House of Representatives sponsored by Sharice Davids, who is a Kansas rep, and it's now heading to the Senate, to the Senate where uh, Kansas Senator Jerry Moran is pushing this um, in hopes to get it passed. And this bill is an attempt to create a working group for uh, advanced air mobility. And if you look at the bill itself, which we both uh, page through, the, the main purpose is to get um, a, a point under the Secretary of Transportation uh, for policy to get a working group going from um, members of the Department of Transportation and the FAA and to get heads of the Department of Defense, Department of Energy, National Aeronautics and Space, you know, and NASA, um, Department of Commerce, and just to get all these different, obviously important um, policy members under the same roof to create a working group and, and get all this infrastructure. And basically, like, what do we need to do for advanced air mobility as this industry starts to come into its own? Um, and so this article from uh, KansasCity.com, the Kansas, the, you know, the Kansas City Star is talking about, hey, is, is this a re revitalization of this aerospace industry that we've had so long? Um, and, you know, I know a little bit of it has, has fled over the years. Alan, what's your take? Is Kansas going to be the next place for urban air mobility, or is this still going to be kind of stuck in Silicon Valley where all that investor money resides? That's a great question. And the Kansas delegation to the to Congress has always had some pull in terms of getting funds funneled through the FAA or sounds like this case, NASA, to Kansas, uh, typically to Wichita State to help fund some exercise that they want to conduct to, in theory, grow the aviation community. It's all around Wichita, primarily a little bit around Garmin and Olathe, Kansas, but primarily it's Wichita. That's where Cessna and Beach and all the Boeing uh, spirit are located. And the, 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 the goal is, is try to get more new technology into Kansas as much as I would love for that to happen, and I think Kansas is a great place to live, and I think it's a, it has a, a great working environment there, there's just not a lot of investor money there. And what's driving new operations is proximity to investment funds. It clearly is. Silicon Valley uh, is, is just full of all kinds of investment money, even Southern California is full of investment money with Hyundai coming in. And the same thing you could say, the same thing exists for Beta in Vermont, which you wouldn't think would be an investor haven, but they have a, a very large investor that is based in Vermont. And so unless you have a $500 million person in, in in Wichita or a billion dollar person in Wichita that's interested in aviation, they're going to have a hard time growing those newer EV tolls, electric aircraft, whatever hydrogen aircraft. It's just not going to happen in Kansas, which is a shame. Uh, but th there's no amount of FAA, NASA, 
consortium working group that's going to really change that. What is going to change that is uh, California making everybody upset and then leaving California like Tesla is doing uh, or some sort of, uh, you know, drive to make it just massively less expensive. But if I'm a billion dollar investor and I'm based in sunny, warm California, I'm not sure I'm going to put my airplane company half a country away. That doesn't make any sense to me. And that's what's driving a lot of these decisions. Northern California is one of the most expensive places on the planet. Why would you put an airplane company there? There's not a lot of aerospace engineers there in terms of recent. And there's, there, it's just super expensive to live there. Doesn't make a lot of sense as a business. But if your investor tells you to put it there, guess what? <laughs> it's going gonna, it's gonna to be in California. So, Dan, do you see how this is working? It's no longer being driven by sort of the technology or the advantages of Wichita and the, and the sort of the low operational cost of, of running a factory there. It's, it's driven by proximity. Yeah. And, of course, I mean, California, you know, it used to be maybe 10 years ago this, you know, fantasy place like San Francisco is so amazing. Like all these places are so amazing. San Francisco is imperiled right now. The crime in San Francisco is insane. You read these articles and you see the videos and you're like, is this real life? I mean, they're, you know, their attorney general. Is it their attorney general or their, no, their district attorney, Chase Boudin, is getting recalled. I can, can't imagine he's going to not be recalled. I mean, it's, it's, it's such a mess there, right? I mean, just sort of like drawing people over there. There's wildfires in other places. There's just, there, California is a, is, a, is a state with turmoil. So now it's not like Kansas City is the next best place to be because it's not necessarily for young people that want to live in a hip environment or whatever. Um, And the other factors, of course, you mentioned. But yeah, California is not as sunny in the non-literal sense as it it used to be. If you said, hey, you're going to take your family to San Francisco, you're like, what, it have my car broken into twice a week? And I mean, it's, it's it's a nightmare in some places. So so you think you think that Kansas would stand out as a place, and it used to. It used to really stand out as a place of you can raise a family. The cost of living's low, weather's decent. It's not great, right? Still gets cold. Still gets very hot. Uh, it's not like living on the beach, that's for sure. But it's a it's a good place to live, right? But I think, weirdly enough, and unless something changes, it's like Kansas time in the spotlight has just come and gone, and somebody. And Kansas has got to wise up and say, we have investment to put into a factory to build some of these airplanes. We have the cash to do this. We need you to come to Kansas. But when Tesla decided to make the swap, Kansas wasn't even in play. Texas was. Austin, primarily, right? Oklahoma was in play a little bit. They're going to get left behind unless they decide to do something a little more bold, I think. Well, are we talking rural? Are we talking Wichita? Are we talking bigger city like Kansas City? Because I think Kansas City can attract young talent, right? It's a city. Kansas City is a nice city. I, I enjoyed it. Been there, I think, once for a pretty long weekend. But I don't know. What are we talking about here, Alan? Is it rural life to, to make this happen? Or can they find some sort of balance in the suburbs of a, of a bigger city? Yeah, Wichita, it's kind of windy, uh, which makes flight tests a little bit easier. And the number of, of, I always thought that did. And another 
part is that the number of flyable days is really high. Now, it's probably not as high as California, but it's really high for the Midwest. So a lot really good flyable days. And it's flat. So if you're on a flight test airplane and it goes down, you're not going to run into a bunch of trees typically. So, you know, for flight test purposes, not a bad place to flight test something. You're not going to run into a mountain in Kansas. Those things are very beneficial. So the geography is really good. And the, obviously the cost of living is, is much lower than it is on the coast for sure. But again, I, I just think the the driving factor is not uh, the engineers. It's not the existing factories that are, are vacant right now. And that you could pick up, you know, probably a really good rate right now. What you what is driving this is where the investors live and they want to be close to home. So unless you can encourage an Elon Musk to move to Kansas or somebody like that, you're going to have a lot of trouble trying to be the next generation of aviation. All right. So moving on, let's talk about uh, SkyDrive. So this is a flying car out of Japan. It looks like it's something that they could just mount machine guns on and it'd be perfect in a video game or something. It looks really cool. Um, I definitely want one. And it looks like something you could see RoboCop flying or, you know, anyway. But um, so SkyDrive, SkyDrive has uh, that they've applied for a type certificate for its flying car. And it was accepted by the Ministry of Land, Infrastructure, Transport and Tourism in Japan. Alan, I mean, is this how far does this safety certificate go? Does this mean it's like good to go or is it only like halfway there? You know, there's Japan has been developing a, a FAA type organization for a number of years. And this doesn't sound like that organization has been involved. Uh, what it sounds like is it's, it's sort of a one person experimental type aircraft. I think that's how it's getting quote unquote blessed or certified, whatever that means. Uh, because it would take years of of testing and validation and all the safety features to get something quote unquote certified at least the world I know uh, but it 's more of a toy you know it's 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 it doesn 't look like something I would be taking to and from work every day uh, because it 's just it looks like something like a snowmobile with propellers <laughs> that 's kind of what it is and These little efforts, I think, are interesting, but I don't see it being a driver in terms of changing the industry, changing people to commute via basically a flying drone, a large drone. Dan, I I just don't see it quite yet. You think the United States would be a big marketplace for it. You're not seeing a lot of articles clamoring for these things, and you don't see a lot of investment here at the moment which is very odd. So it's more like it's a really cool piece of tech, but not a lifestyle changer. So let's move on to Hyundai, which they are definitely trying to change lifestyles and they're going big. So uh, interesting article from new Atlas talking just about, and there's been a lot of uh, publications breaking the story about, Hyundai um, breaking out their EVTOL segment to call it Super Null, and that they want to be they want to be flying customers by 2028, which is also a long way off. But they're also talking pretty big that they want to, you know, have a hand in all these different transportation things. Which obviously they make great cars, you know, so you can kind of check that off the list. But they want you to take a Hyundai scooter to the heliport or the Vertaport, get in a Hyundai or Super Null. 
uh, EVTOL, fly that somewhere, then hop in like essentially like an Uber, uh, which might be a Hyundai vehicle and get to your final destination. This multi-mode, they want to be this huge infrastructure company, which is kind of what they're talking about. Um, you know, so their EVTOL design looks cool. It looks similar to like a Joby, right? It's got the central cockpit, the central fuselage, and then different booms. Um, so not any kind of radical design, but their idea that they could do all this, which in the U.S., you know, there's a number of big players in scooters and electric bikes like Lime, Bird, uh, Lyft has uh, its own scooter arm. Of course, Bird is owned by Uber, but these companies are struggling to be profitable. Um, Uber and Lyft are still struggling to turn a profit. And, you know, these, of course, EV2L companies are just burning through cash trying to get a product to market. Not to say they won't be profitable, but they're certainly just in the R&D phase now. So, Alan, is this is this uh, just a pie-in-the-sky idea that Hyundai can jump into this market and take over all these different uh, modes of transportation? Well, it, it wonders from a business standpoint in sort of the diversification of a, of a company and how well that has gone historically. Not to say that Hyundai can't pull this off, but usually when a company spreads out into multiple areas, it's either going to become a behemoth or it's going to really damage the company and it's going to go away. And I'm not sure you want to risk your company on aircraft at the moment, even though from the sounds of it, I hear a lot of footsteps about... U.S. automotive makers stepping into the airplane market, which they haven't been in since World War II, uh, it's a huge risk. And obviously separating the company, I think Hyundai's done a smart piece here, is to sort of set the financials aside and can control the financials so it doesn't get out of hand. Because the slippery slope of aviation is you're kind of halfway done and you've already overspent and you know the remainder of 50% is going to cost you even more is to say, well, you can't stop now. <laughs> you got to keep going. And having been around that a number of times, like the investors are just royally upset. And they should be because something was promised and it's not being delivered. And and they're just asked to keep digging into their pocket for to, to keep supporting these things because in order to get their money out, you got to finish it. You only makes you only makes money when you have a, a sellable product. And I think Hyundai is smart enough to realize that and probably is getting good advice about that. Because Honda sort of did the same thing with their aircraft company, right? It's sort of a division of Honda. And they treated it that way for the most part. And I think the Honda experience has been relatively good. But Honda took seemingly forever to get to this great, and it's a fantastic airplane. Uh, the Honda Jet is unbelievably great. Uh, but it, they took their own sweet time to develop that airplane. And they have a great product. I'm not sure Hyundai can do that now because they've got other players in that marketplace, the Jobies, the uh, the Whisks of the world, the Betas of the world, that are really going gung-ho for that marketplace. So if Hyundai wants to be in it, they're going to have to get in it and get it fast. I'm not sure, like you said, 2028 is a good time to enter the market. Don't you kind of wonder that they're going to try to grab hold of somebody, merge somewhere? Yeah, I don't imagine that you want to try to stand up your own scooter company. You're probably just going to want to buy one that exists, you know. And um, and of course, from that from that standpoint, maybe this is a little more realistic. But I mean, the one thing that Hyundai has that some of these other companies don't is that they're a big company, right? They can throw resources like Boeing throws resources at developing the hydrogen plane of the future, and they can spend that fifty or hundred million dollars and not worry too much that it's ten years in the future, right? 
Um, Hyundai could do that with this EVTOL where they talk about 2028. That maybe is not a very big deal to them, whereas that's a pretty big deal to a company like Volocopter or Joby that's going to keep burning through cash to try to get this one offering, literally pun, pun intended, off the ground, right? So um, I don't know. I mean, maybe a bigger company like this has a pretty good footing. They can acquire one company, get some tech from another, and just maybe they're not as far off if they can make some smart acquisitions. But definitely a big, um, you know, again, we've talked about the bigger companies kind of waiting and seeing. And this is definitely an example of like, we didn't hear much of, not, didn't hear that much from Hyundai in the last year. And here they are like, oh, guess what? We want to rule the world as far as transportation. Hey, here we are, you know, so. It's a real status play. And I do think if you watch real closely, watch what happens at Whisk and watch what happens at Archer. Because I think those two companies, uh, I know Archer just had the SPAC and raised a bunch of cash. I think Whisk is trying to do that right now. It seems like Whisk all of a sudden showed up in California in the last week or so. Uh, I think if you're looking for a partner, Hyundai wouldn't be a bad partner. So if you have an aircraft that's kind of developed and you're like 50% down the road and you have the staff to do it, Hyundai is not a bad partner for you. And if, if, if Hyundai has sort of separated this as a separate entity, it kind of makes a perfect situation where Hyundai – aviation can grab hold of a SPAC or a, a whisk and say, or, or a heavy side uh, sort of thing and say, here, we're going to work together. Boom. Now you have the Toyota, Joby and Hyundai, whoever. Now you have some real heavyweights throwing their money around. It could get interesting then. Well, last on the docket today, Volocopter back in the news cycle, they uh, took a two man crude, uh, flight in their X2 EVTOL aircraft. So this is one that potentially would have a pilot and one other person in it. Um, again, looks like a like a standard like chopper with their signature white sort of lattice work, um, you know, boom arms up to the top. So, Alan, what sticks out to you about this uh, this latest uh, Volcopter flight? I love Volcopter because those guys have guts and they're financially playing the odds. They'll show you their aircraft in flight. They'll fly it. They're not afraid to fly it, but they also are showing it in places where they have a potential to make income. That's smart. It's a business. Aviation is a business. You go where the customers are, show the aircraft in flight, flight test it where you have potential customers. That's why they're in South Korea. That's why they're in all these other places, uh, Dubai or wherever they were recently, right? So that they can show a flying, working aircraft to a potential customer set. And if they're smart and Volocopter is smart, they have salespeople on site, trying to, to, to already book orders for these things. So I think the Volocopter approach is one that others will follow. Volocopter just has a working aircraft now that, you know, a Joby isn't quite there yet where they can't do those customer demonstrations. I do hear that Joby's bringing people out to California to look at the aircraft. I think that's happening more. But Volocopter goes around the world. Show it. And that takes a lot of guts at this stage. And it takes a lot of... Uh, of good sales and marketing uh, people to put those things together, to, to make it as visible as they are. And I think that's a, a brilliant, brilliant stroke by them. So more Volocopter. I like it. Yeah. And they've also been consistently in the news cycle. Like it, they just sort of stepping stone, just sort of like pace it out. And they've been, you know, especially in the last year, 
where it's like, hey, and, and they, like you said, they've been flying their aircraft visibly in different places. So it seems like they're doing everything right and making progress, showing it off, staying in the news cycle, which is always good for business. So yeah, we'll look to, I'm sure, continue to, to hear more from them um, in the end of the year and the new year. So that's going to do it for today's episode of the Struck Aerospace Engineering Podcast. Thanks again for listening. Be sure to subscribe to the show, share it with a friend. We'll see you here next week on Struck. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardaero.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.